Second Kings chapter 4. I'm going to start with the story. In 2016, this case made its way to the, the highest courts in England. And it involved this 16-year-old girl who was stricken with terminal cancer. And she knew that she had months to live. And so, because she was afraid of dying, she actually, money that was given to her by her parents and grandparents, they were going to help her pay for her to be cryogenically preserved. So, frozen. She was going to freeze, hoping that after 100 or 200 years, science will have found a cure for her cancer. So, she was hoping that you know, in a hundred years from now, they will have the cure for whatever she's dealing with. And they would wake her up, like we see in the sci-fi movies, and they would cure her, and then she could live to a ripe age of 90 or 100. Now, how is this possible? Like, is that possible? Well, it's done. A few hundred people have done it over the years. So what happens, you die, and within minutes, within minutes, they inject you with chemicals. They inject you with chemicals, chemicals so that your blood does not clot, and other chemicals so that your organs do not freeze and they turn icy. They, they do all these things within minutes. And then they dip you in liquid nitrogen, and they freeze you temperature of negative 150 degrees Celsius. And it is there where they are preserved. And many people hoping for immortality have, have done this. So she is not the first person to do this, nor will she be the last. Now what's shocking is that it cost twenty-eight dollars to $35,000 to do it. It's expensive. But it's not that expensive. Like, I imagine that's millions of dollars. Like, this is pretty cheap. This is like a car. You can buy a Honda with this price. So, why is it that cheap, expensive, but not so expensive where it's like only the, the billionaires can do this? Well, because it hasn't been proven to bring anyone back to life. All they're doing is just a science experiment, okay? All they're doing is preserving the human body, preserving the flesh and the organs. That's literally all they are doing. But one thing that they do not, they do not recognize is that medical science, as advanced as it is now, does not have the answer to bring back life, the soul. Bible tells us that once a person dies, it is it. It is appointed for a man once to die and then go before the judgment of God. Science cannot do that. Science cannot go dip into the spiritual realm, grab a person's soul, and then bring it back into the body. And so this begs the question, how do we find immortality? The age-old question, 
that men have been seeking to find ever since they roamed the earth. How do we live forever? Science cannot give us that answer, as advanced as it is. And science right now is scary advanced. You can't find it anywhere. We have comfort as believers in Jesus Christ. That answer is found in the book called the Holy Bible. In the Bible, it tells us not just about life, okay, but resurrection life. And this answer to immortality that people are paying, throwing money at doctors to, is not resolved by rituals or special prayers. Doctors cannot fix this problem of the decaying of the body. So how do we find the answer to this question? It's not found in what you guys do. It's, it's found in what was already done. It's not found in things you guys do. It is found in a person. And that is the unique thing about our faith, isn't it? It is not about rituals. It is not about you have to do this and not do that. Our whole religion is centered around this one person. Without this person, we don't have a faith. And that person is Jesus Christ. Now, he is explicit in the New Testament. We see him in the New Testament. Stories have been written about him, starting from Matthew. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are biographies of Jesus Christ. And then all the other books after the Gospels are just stories that point back to what Jesus Christ has done and the teachings that he has left behind. So we are reminded of the gospel story in the new. But we also have to understand that it, for us, we see it in the Old Testament. And yes, you know, we talked about it on Friday night Bible study. You'll be hard-pressed to find a passage in the Old Testament where it says the Messiah is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ will die on the cross. You will not find these passages anywhere in the Old Testament. But you see, God has put it underneath that you have to read between the lines. God, Jesus Christ, is foreshadowed through stories and people. We see people used as prototypes of Jesus Christ. People like Moses and Joshua and stories like the slaying of animals. These are all to set the stage for Jesus Christ. Okay? So if you want, like the Old Testament, they are the opening act, opening up for the main event. The main event being Jesus Christ, the Son incarnate, coming to this earth. And so the stories and people of the Old Testament, they're like stained glass windows in the church that bring light, that bring in light inwards. That light being the light of Christ. And so we see this. And I point 
us to 2 Kings chapter 4. Last week, we reminded of the gospel story in the first seven verses of 2 Kings. Elisha, the prophet, encountered the widow who was in debt because she could not pay for the debt. Her sons were about to be sold. And so by the miracle of God, she was able to pay off the debt by oil that was supernaturally provided for her. No human being did this. Demonstrating to us that we don't have enough righteousness to earn peace with God. That it had to be given to us. It's external. You will not muster up enough righteousness inside of you. No matter how many good works that you do. So God came down. We'll be reminded of this even more so in the next story. Elisha's encounter with the Shunammite woman. Shunammite woman. And it's uh, verses 8 all the way through 37. Because it is long. I will walk us through the passage. And like I do, stop at places where I feel it's necessary for us to highlight. After encountering a poor woman, a widow, Elisha, the next person that he encounters is someone who is on the complete other side of the spectrum. She is a rich woman. So first he encounters a poor woman, and now in today's passage, he will encounter a rich woman. It says in verse 8, one day Elisha went on to Shunem, where a wealthy woman lived, who urged him to eat some food. So whenever he passed that way, he would turn in there to eat. And so this Narrative takes place in the town of Shunem. It is a tribal territory of Issachar. It's on the northern outskirts of Israel. Okay, it is the most north part of the nation of Israel. Okay, so you guys know at this time the nation is split. Judah on the south, Israel on the north. I'm not talking about Judah. I'm talking about the northern kingdom and it's, it's up on top. And this is where Mount Carmel is as well the northern part of Israel. And it seems Elisha passed by this town often, okay, which caught the attention of this woman, this wealthy woman. Now, this word in Hebrew for wealthy, we interpret it wealthy, but that word gadol also is, that same word is used to talk about someone who is old, okay? So if you uh, for instance, Genesis 27, 15, Esau as the oldest brother. That same word is used there. But we know from this text, she wasn't necessarily old, but she had a lot of wealth. How do we know this? It's because she says, the holy man who is continually passing our way, let us make a small room on the roof with walls and put him for him a bed, a table, a chair, a lamp. So whenever he comes to us, he can go in there. So 
Think about, if you want to think about homes in the near ancient east during this time, they didn't have like the steep roofs like we do. They're flat roofs, okay? And it was built this way because during the summertime, it gets super hot. And so the family would go up on the roof to sleep there. Okay? And this was like the best air conditioning that they could have. But when they also used it as a guest house. Okay? We know Elijah, when he was uh, living with the widow in, we've read in 1 Kings, in the land of Phoenicia, he also stayed in the upper room, on the roof of the house. So it wasn't strange for someone to live on the roof of a house. It looks weird today, but during this time, it was normal. It was customary to do so. But what is unusual is that she doesn't just want to have him sleep there. She wants to actually build a personal guest house for him. Normal people do not have this kind of money. So he knew, we know, she is someone with a lot of money to do a project like this and not just a, a bed. But let's put a lampstand, a table, a chair. Let's do the whole nine yards for this prophet. So we see she was someone who really cared for this man of who revered God's servant. And I see that in church today. There are people revere and they serve the, the servants of God. And what a heart that is. Okay? And Jesus Christ actually commends those who actually bring in prophets of God. Well, so he agrees. And he, because she was so generous. He wants to pay, pay back, pay it forward. So what would you have me do for you? He initially says that, hey, I know the king. I know royalty. Okay? I deal with them all the time. You know, I could give you connections. I could give you networks. That's not what she wanted. She said, it's okay. I dwell among my own people. I do this out of the kindness of my heart. And so, Gehazi, Elisha's protege. So anytime a prophet is, is doing work for God, it seems that there was apprenticeship here. Elijah had Elisha. And then we see Elisha now having this, this new up-and-coming prophet, Gehazi. He's not known because we see later on he actually falls. Okay, falls from grace. He sins against the Lord. And so he kind of cuts him off. God cuts him off. But Gehazi says, so wait a minute. This, this woman right here doesn't have a child. And her husband is old. This is how we know she was wealthy but a young woman. Because Gehazi did not say, oh, both the people are old. He said, no, the husband is old. He is unable to provide for her a child. 
And so he tells him, I'm going to give God's going to give you a child. At this season, verse 16, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. And sure enough, the woman conceived, bearing a son. And this is where, in the portion of the story, where we will be introduced to the key components of the gospel message. What happens? It says, when the child has grown. When the child has grown. Now, the word used here, you got to understand, when in different stages of a boy's life, different titles are given for that, for that boy. So, for instance, if you are an infant, the Hebrew would put on the title for you a yonek. That means you are an infant. If you are able to eat solid food, you, you will be referred to as olel. You are the same boy, it's just a different title. And how about gamel, when you're about five years of age? And then taf, if you are six years old and older, under the parent's supervision. The word we have here is Elem. So we know, we can pinpoint about what age he is. Think about 11 to 12 years old. And so now the supervision has been transferred from the mother to the father. He has an age right now where the father can take care of him. Before then, the mother is solely responsible for the boy. And it says here he was out there working the field, and he says to his father, oh, my head, my head. What happened here? He had a headache? Well, it was bad enough for him to be rushed to his mother, and he died in his mother's arms. What went wrong? Every historian will tell you and commentator will tell you that this boy died of a heat stroke. The heat of the sun was so unbearable for the boy that he died of heat exhaustion. And then in verse 20, we find the boy dead. He is lifeless. The gift that God has given to this woman, this faithful Shunammite woman, has been taken away from her. This is where I will insert the gospel message into the Old Testament narrative. I believe we are like the boy. Dead. How so? I am living and breathing. What do you mean? If you are a believer, there was a point in time in your life where you were dead. But I got to qualify that. Spiritually dead. Yes, your physical body is alive and well. It is thriving, okay? But I'm talking about the spirit. What is going on inside? You are dead. How do I know this? Because the Bible tells us that. Paul says in Ephesians 2.1 that we were dead in our trespasses and sin. So you ask us what led 
to our death, what was the cause of our death, it was sin. The effects of sin caused our death. Say, I'm not a bad person. I'm not like the rapists and murderers in jail. I'm a decent human being. How can you tell me, one, I'm a sinner, and two, that I am spiritually dead? That sounds kind of overly dramatic. Am I being overly dramatic? Here's the thing. And this is the message that sparked the Protestant Reformation. Recognition of man's depravity. Because the reformers, our forefathers of the faith, looked at themselves and looked at Everyone else walking the earth and say, wow, everyone is wretched. I mean, you may be good when you compare yourself to people who have committed murders and crimes, who have cheated. You may not have cursed in your life. That's great. But if you compare yourself to, this, to the glory of God, to the perfection of God, it is only then you recognize how much you fall short. It all started with Adam. The Adamic fall, the original sin. And it's because of sin that every human being harbors inside of them. Spirit is choked. There is no spirit life in them. David recognized this. Psalm 55.1, Before, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. And in sin, my mother conceived me. The psalmist is saying, hey, the moment I stepped foot into this world, all I knew was sin. I was born through sin. We have all fallen short of the glory of God is what Romans 6, Romans 3 tells us. This is something that we truly have to recognize. That sin has ravaged the heart of every human being. Why? Because Adam represents all humanity. Because you come from Adam, you carry that DNA of sin. It says that the wages of sin is death. Physical death was introduced after the Adamic fall. We also know of the second death found in Revelation. When they will be thrown into the lake of fire to be tormented forever and ever. That is called the second death in the Apocalypse. So wages of sin is not just you dying physically, but it is you being eternally separated from God in hell and experiencing the wrath of God. Because God is a just and holy God, he has to deal with sin or else he wouldn't be just. 
what judge who sees a killer and says, hey, you know what? I got to go home early today. My wife made casserole here. Bang, I let you go. Who would call him a just judge? And that guy should get his, you know, whatever revoked, his certificate license for being a judge. We have sin. It is treason against a holy God. It has to be dealt with. And the penalty of it is death. We are the wrath of God. So you don't just evaporate into thin air. The Bible tells us that you will experience the wrath of God. Why? That's so unfair. Why? Because our God is a holy and an everlasting So scripture tells us, it hints that we were dead at one point. If you do not have Jesus Christ in your heart, you are dead. You are the definition of the walking dead. You have no life inside of you. You are like an idol. You look like there is life, but inside is nothing. There is no heartbeat. Flatline. And if the Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death, and that we have we are dead in our trespasses and sin, how can a dead person resuscitate themselves? I don't know any dead person who has done that who has performed CPR on himself. They cannot respond to, the, to the, the cries of the people around them. Nothing. There's no life in them for them to respond. And so too was the state of our heart at one point, the state of our spiritual state, spiritual being. We we're dead, and this is something we recognize is essential in the gospel itself. The boy laid there, lifeless. What happens in the story? She places the dead boy on Elisha's bed where he's staying in the guest room. And runs to Mount Carmel where Elisha is. Now, where she is to where Mount Carmel is, is roughly 20 miles. 20 miles northwest. It's like from here to Irvine. Okay, that's not far, but it's pretty far if you're walking or running. Okay? Imagine you're running here, if you guys can imagine in your head. Like UC Irvine, right? Now I'm going to run to UC Irvine. If you run a steady pace without stopping or resting, you can get there, your location, in about six to seven hours. It is a six to seven hour journey if you do not stop, if you are a professional walker. And that's pretty interesting. They have a category of that, that you are a professional walker. 
effort, like marathons for that. So it probably took her maybe eight to ten hours. And she did this because she loved her son. She didn't care about how dangerous the journey was, how long it was going to take. Her son was dead, and she had only one thing in her mind. My son needs to come back to life. I'm going to see the man of God to bring my son back to life. We believe that when God seeks to save, he saves indefinitely. John 6, 39, it is the will of him who sent me, Jesus is talking here, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. But it leads us to wonder the impetus of God's calling. That God decided to make a plan to resuscitate the dead in the first place. That God even had a plan to bring life to a dead vessel. God made a way to give us life. Isn't that John 3.16? The passage we all know. Out of love for us, much like the love the mom, the mother, the Shunammite woman had for her son, God, because he was motivated by his love for her son, went out to save her son. God sent that antidote. Jesus Christ, his son. The perfect and final sacrifice. Think about this. She ran up there. And while Elijah sees this woman far off, he tells Gehazi, his apprentice, go run after her and tell her what she wants. And after finding out that the son has died, he tells Gehazi here, here's my staff. I want you to run back to where the boy is and put the staff on the boy's head. And so we see here First marathon runner in the Bible, Gehazi, right? And imagine your Gehazi is like, oh man, <laughs> me run all the way over there? It must suck to be Elisha's apprentice. And so Gehazi runs, and of course, puts the staff of Elisha on top of the boy. It doesn't work. Thus, Elijah has to go to bring that antidote. But you can see the story is, is busy. People are running. People are moving. There's activity taking place. The only person that is just stagnant is the boy because he's dead. In the gospel message, if we are dead, everything else is active and moving. God is moving heaven and earth. To save us. Jesus Christ being called by God the Father. 
is coming down to make a way for us to have eternal life. Everyone is moving. There is activity except the Lord. The boy cannot save himself. It took the man of God, Elisha, to breathe life into him. Same exact story we see when Elijah was with the widow in Phoenicia. He does the same exact thing that his mentor did. It's almost identical. Elijah goes on top of the boy to bring life into him, and so does Elisha. But the fact remains an external force had to breathe life back into the boy. R.C. Sproul said, his fall, being man's fall, is great. It is so great that only the effectual grace of God working in his heart can bring him to faith. First John 4, 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live. So we might live through Christ, meaning that we will live. So the knowledge that people use often is you are a person on the verge of drowning God throws the life, life-saver. It's you, up to you to grab onto that life-saver. And according to this doctrine and this view of the depravity of man, you are dead floating on top of the water. You have been gone for a while. You cannot grab the life-saver. Bible tells us you were dead when you asked my son. Like the boy in this story. And then lastly, regeneration. This is the process of salvation. You are given resurrection life. The boy came back to life. And if he shares the story of how he died and came back to life, I don't think the boy is going to share, hey, you know what, I, I said death, I'm going to beat you up, and bang, I, I overcame death. His story is going to go something like this, man, you know, I died. My, my mom went out to get this man of God, Elijah, and through the power of God, going to give credit to God. Who gives life to you but God? Who is the source of life? Colossians 2.13 And you who were dead in your trespasses 
and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses. So how are we made alive? You know that sin that I talked about? The offense that you made towards God, you committed towards God, was forgiven. Remember I said God is a just God. He has to deal with sin. If he just lets sin go, he is not a just God. Someone has to pay. Blood has to be shed. And so Christ took your place and absorbed the wrath of God. Substitutionary atonement. It didn't just disappear like a magician makes a rabbit disappear. We were forgiven because of what Christ has done. And because we have been forgiven, we are given life. Ephesians 2, 5. Even when you were dead in your trespasses, made alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. Christ did it all. Christ gave you life. A. A. Hodge, a 19th century theologian, American theologian, he said this about the nature of salvation. Whatever man may do after regeneration, the first quickening of the dead must originate with God. You know, I'm reminded of, this is a story that I, I'm reminded of when I think about this. The dynamic between the saving God and then the dead man. I, I'm reminded of uh, the company Apple. You guys know the advertisement, the company Apple. I'm pretty sure almost all of you guys have an iPhone in your pocket, right? All, most. Okay. Uh, this company was founded in 76, 1976. We all know his name is Steve Jobs. And he, he has grown this company to be the first trillion dollar company in history. Okay, The first company to be worth trillion dollars. There's not a place you go in the world that it has not reached. But the funny thing is, you know, in, in the early years, that was not the case. It was a company that was actually struggling. In the early 90s, the company, Apple, was on the verge of bankruptcy. Imagine that. It was on the verge of bankruptcy. Sales were declining year by year, month by month. Why? Because Microsoft, their competitor, was giving to the people what Microsoft was the software that all these companies were using, right? And so Apple would not adapt. They were worth $3 billion at this time, which is really low for a company of this caliber. And they lost in 1997, one year, a billion dollars. They had only three months left until they would file for bankruptcy or they would close up shop. Three months left. That, they were that close to being extinct. Three months. What happened? 
what changed? What gave life back into this company? Was it the genius of Steve Jobs? People may be saying, oh yeah, man, he's a genius. He turned the company around. He can do anything. No. His company was dying. And he needed help. And who came to help him but his frenemy, Bill Gates? Bill Gates actually came and single-handedly saved the company. You have iPhone right now and MacBook, not because of Steve Jobs, but because of Bill Gates. In August of 1997, Steve Jobs publicly announced that their company was saved. Microsoft, they would partner with Microsoft. He announced that, oh, our Apple is going to partner with Microsoft. You know, a year before that, he was trashing Microsoft, saying they have no class and, and no creativity. He hated Bill Gates a lot. But he says now, oh, they're going to partner with them. Internet Explorer was going to be the default browser for Microsoft. Microsoft Office would be made available to Apple users. And so you can see it had the, the fingerprints of Microsoft all over it, right? But what saved the company was this. Bill Gates bought $150, $150 million of Apple stock in 97. Today's standard, that's $52 billion. He donated that much to save his competitor, Apple. And so when, when people look back and when they look at just the life of Apple, that was such a, a, a turning point for this company. A lot of people attribute the success of Apple to not Steve Jobs, but Bill Gates. An external force came in, breathed life into the company, pretty much. And isn't that the gospel message? We dead, we are dead. We were dead, I should say. But God came in to breathe life we may have not just life, but resurrection life. Life that is abundant, that has purpose and meaning. All the weight of sin, the sin that we commit and the sin that we bear inside of us have been wiped clean because of what Christ has done. And so we too can rejoice just like that boy. I have been given life not because of what I have done, but because of the life giver, God himself. And so for the believers, may we rejoice in this. May we cry out to God with thanksgiving. Thank you, Lord, for saving a wretch like me. And for those of us who are not saved, and you want to listen, to have life. One, 
nice way to travel. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We come before God, God, I am dead in my trespasses, how I need you. We do not turn to any man or science, we turn to the life giver. And we confess that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, Romans 10.9. But the truth remains. Jesus is the source of life. Jesus gives you water that a 16-year-old, 18-year-old girl so desired. And she cannot resist it. So may we reflect gift that he has given us, the gift of eternal life. And as we sing the last song, may we, may we reflect